But I always feel when we get to the uh, last session of a day like this that verse is about enduring to the end and uh, you've been with me through my troubles and things like that come to mind. But uh, it's been lovely to share with you and to meet, I think, most people personally. I haven't quite met everybody yet, but it's, it's a real joy to uh, have personal contact as well as Bill says to meet the Lord in the Word. I'm going to suggest that uh, this time we read the little unit, the trio of Psalms that we come to next, which is 126, 7 and 8. And I'm going to read them straight through as one unit so that we've got them in front of us uh, for this uh, last exposition. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, a son's born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Fascinating, isn't it? That last uh, unit ended with that. One, two, five, verse five. Peace be upon Israel. And we have the same refrain now. Peace be upon Israel. So it may be that those are marker posts. They're sort of uh, end blocks which would confirm our thinking that 126, 127, and 128 is one unit. And although they are discrete psalms, they fit together uh, very um, obviously. So uh, what are we going to learn now from this new perspective on the, uh, the life of the climbing pilgrim? Uh, we've seen already that the difficulties on the way to the city of Jerusalem are par for the course, as we would say. You expect that. Going from this world to the heavenly glory, we will run into difficulties, we will face problems. But we've also tried to see spiritual realism about the pressures and challenges of the journey. And above all, in the Psalms we've studied already today, a sharpened vision of God and an awareness of his resources. And that, I suppose, is the biggest picture of all. These are the songs that keep us climbing because they take us to God now, we sing our theology, don't we? What we learn, we often put into words and sing. The tunes remain in our mind. So important that we sing true biblical theology because a whole generation of young Christians will be nurtured by what they sing. 
And uh, while I can well understand that some of the old songs and uh, hymns and their rather traditional music is not that attractive to the younger generation, we nevertheless need to try to encourage them to sing things that have the same sort of quality because what they're storing up in their spiritual memory bank will be really important for their future life. These songs do keep us climbing. And I find that songs that I learned as a young Christian way back in my teens often come into my mind. Mercifully, they are very strongly biblical songs. We used to sing them uh, in those days. And I think it's just important for us to value the contemporary biblical music uh, because we learn our theology through what we sing. And uh, if all our theology is simply saying, I sort of kind of think I'd like to praise you, Lord, uh, we're not, it's not going to keep us in the difficult days. So we need quality in what we sing in terms of our church um, songs and hymns and spiritual songs. But I don't think it's accidental that these are songs to keep us climbing. And armies march, don't they, by singing songs. And people often uh, identify themselves together. Today in London, there's been the cup final, the soccer cup final, and the teams will have been singing their songs. It's a huge national occasion every year, packs out Wembley Stadium. They'll all have been singing their songs to support and to encourage one another. So it is a very elemental thing, singing songs. And uh, it's no no, um, um, surprise that the Bible constructs these encouragements to keep climbing, to keep going, in the terms of songs. But one of the exhortations that we need to most often hear on our pilgrimage is one which you would hear every day if you were in the London Underground at the Bank Tube Station. And there on an automated uh, announcement, it says, as the tube train comes in and the doors open up, mind the gap. (laughs) Mind the gap. And I think that's an exhortation that very helpfully occupies these psalms, opens up these psalms. Mind the gap. Because uh, the gap between the train and the platform is nothing compared with the gap in our Christian lives between what we know and how we live. And that is the gap that I want you to be particularly concerned about with me in these last few minutes this afternoon. It's a credibility gap. A gap between our theology and our living. Mind the gap. So how do we keep those two things together when they often seem to to be so far apart? How do we live in real fellowship with God in the midst of a truly hostile world? How do we keep climbing when it seems as though the realities I've been talking about in these previous sessions are theoretical often rather than real to us? Well, we've seen that the pilgrim community is inevitably set in the world that it's a world of lying and deceit, of contempt and arrogance, of intrigue and hostility, and that all of this will put pressure on us to stop going on as Christians. Sometimes the gap will seem impossibly wide because we see it in our own hearts that part of us wants to follow and part of us doesn't. One of the biggest tragedies, I think, of Christian thinking in the last 50 years has been the development of a dichotomy, a difference between mind and heart. So I meet Christians who will talk about, oh, you're a truth Christian, but I'm a love Christian. When I was there, sort of, you could opt for one or the other. Uh, You're a doctrine Christian, but of course I'm an experienced Christian. 
You're a word Christian, I'm a spirit Christian. You're a mind Christian, I'm a heart Christian. Now, brothers and sisters, we've got to say that that just will not stand up to analysis at all. It is, as the, as the marriage service says, that which God has joined together, let not man put apart. And God has joined together truth and love, doctrine and experience, word and spirit. And we must hold them together. We must be people of the word and people of the spirit. But some people retreat, I think, into an almost totally theoretical Christianity. It's as though they become more and more concerned with the niceties of doctrine and with the intricacies of what they know until they can dot every I and cross every T according to their precise system of theology. But apparently they have no heart for lost people, no real love for those who don't yet belong to Jesus. Mind the gap. And then we all know that it's equally easy and dangerous to plunge into a totally experiential, existentialist version of Christianity, where if it feels all right, it is all right, and without any sort of objectivity, any sort of yardstick to measure by. And such people become victims of the now. They're governed entirely by subjectivism. They're driven by every wind that blows. Every new thing sweeps through their life, and in the end, they're washed up, shipwrecked by it. Mind the gap. Now, when they say that at the bank tube station, you don't solve the problem by standing on the platform going nowhere any more than you solve the, the problem by staying on the train and going on an endless excursion on the circle line. You have to get off or you have to get on. But the gap exists, and we need to be aware of it, the credibility gap between what we say we believe and how we live. And I think that's what these three psalms help us with very greatly. Psalm 126 is highly realistic. I want to call Psalm, I just want to have two sections in this talk. Psalm 126 I want to call the problem analyzed and 127 I want, and 8 I want to call the principles applied. So the problem analyzed and then the solution principles applied. 126 divides into two halves which each explore one side of the problem. One to three, what we know. Four to six, what we experience. One to three, what we know is real and is genuine. We are taken back to the realm of biblical reality where we recognize the great saving acts of God which he has done unaided by anyone. And here, particularly the restoration of Israel after the exile. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we could hardly believe it. We were like men who dreamed. It seemed literally incredible. It was such an amazing thing. Now, when we recognize the great saving acts of God, what he has done, unaided by anyone, what he's done in our lives in setting us free from the power of sin and death and hell and the devil. That is a specific example uh, of God's constant redeeming covenant mercy. He brought the captives back. Look at the footnote. He restored to health. In other words, he put together again. You know that old uh, nursery rhyme about Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall? And all the king's soldiers and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. God is a great putter together of Humpties. 
he puts together the people who've been shattered by sin and all the problems of this godless world. But of course it's costly and it takes time. The covenant Lord then stepped into the situation to revolutionize it and to bring his people back from their captivity. That is the salvation history of the Bible and it goes on today in our lives. And perhaps sometimes we can hardly believe it's happening. More likely, we might as well have been asleep for all that we have contributed. I I think that's possibly a more likely meaning of the second part. We were like men who dreamed. Men who dream are not contributing anything to the action in the real world. And I wonder if that's the idea, that uh, God just did it all, and we watched with our mouths wide open. Well, they were mighty acts of deliverance, but nothing like the mighty act of the cross and the wonderful deliverance that God accomplished through the death of his son. And this sovereign Lord who brings captives freedom through the death of his son. When we really think about that, then we can identify with verse 2, can't we? Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. When we really are close to the Lord Jesus and rejoicing in our great salvation, what a wonderful experience that is. And even the hostile world, as it watches, has to attribute the changes to a power that is beyond the human. Then it was said among the nations to be, the Lord has done great things for them. Again, you get that running through the Bible, don't you? Pharaoh, you remember his magicians? Uh, When God turns the water of the Nile into blood, and then when there is the second plague of frogs, And the magicians are able to replicate both those first two plagues. I don't know how. It was by some occult demonic power. Who would want magicians like that? I mean, if you've already got the land full of frogs, you don't want some more occult frogs produced, (laughs) do you? But evil always overstretches itself. And then the third plague, the magicians say, this is the finger of God. We can't get near to this. And, of course, all the other plagues as uh, as the same. So it was said among the nations, the Lord has done this. And from Pharaoh onwards, this is the finger of God, becomes the note of God's intervening power on the behalf of his people. So verse 3 is the confirming testimony of the rescued people. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. See here how the theology of the covenant-keeping, rescuing God, has become experience. The gap is closed in verse 3. Not just that we know that God is a rescuer. Jesus is called saviour, rescuer. The gap's closed. He's my rescuer. He's done great things for me. He rescued me from my sin. He brought me up out of a horrible pit. He set my feet on the rock. And these are such great initiatives of salvation in our lives. And just stop and think. They're real, aren't they? They're wonderful. You know, if we were saying this in some parts of the world, they'd be on the seats now, waving their handkerchiefs and shouting hallelujah. Um, But you're just Texan people who don't do things like that. And of course, if you were in Britain, you'd be sitting on your hands, making very sure that you didn't do it. But whatever our cultural expression is, let's have some joy and rejoicing in what God has done. Sometimes we British Christians, our joy is so deep that it never actually surfaces at all. But we want to be rejoicing people. What a great thing. The Lord has done great things for us, hasn't he? He's rescued us. He's made us his people. He's taking us to glory. We live in joy. 
Now that, I think, is what closes the gap for us then. And sometimes people say that, don't they? You know, they'll say, I don't know what's happened to old George right lately, but he seems to have completely changed. And what's happened is that old George has got converted. He's come to know the Lord Jesus. He's been rescued. So there are these moments of great rejoicing. But we have to be honest, they are moments. They are foreshadowings of an eternal reality, but they come and go in this world. So here we've got what we know, that this is what God is like and this is what he constantly does. He rescues people. And that means, you see, that we should never write off people as being beyond God's rescue because he's always surprising us. One of the loveliest things that happens in pastoral ministry is when people later on in their lives come to faith in Christ. People who for years and years and years have had no faith at all. There was a lovely lady in my church in Southampton who was converted when she was 75. And uh, for years and years, she hadn't been a Christian at all. During the war, when her husband was in the army away, she had brought up her children. She'd been very faithful. She'd prayed every night to the God she didn't know. Oh, God, thank you for getting me through today. Get me through tonight and tomorrow. That's all she prayed. And after the war, she hadn't prayed anymore. And then a Christian student came to live in her house as a lodger. And he loved her and cared for her as a Christian and regarded her really as a granny and shared with her his faith in Christ, and she became a Christian. It was a great joy to baptize her at the age of 75. And uh, I, uh, I remember after um, we had a, a class for those who were coming into baptism and church membership and so on, who were just moving into the church, and I said at the end of the class, now are there any more, any more um, questions that anyone has to ask? Her name was May, and uh, May put up her hand, and she said, oh yes, I've got a question. And she had this wonderful Southampton accent. Um, and she said, my question, David, is this. Why did it take so long? <laughs> In other words, why have I been waiting 75 years for this? And the answer is, of course, we don't know at all why he takes so long. But isn't it lovely that he brought her out of the darkness? Into, she lived about another three, five years. And everywhere she went, you couldn't stop her talking about Jesus. She just went on and on talking about Jesus. So you see, God does do these great things and they do rejoice our hearts. But in verses 4 to 6, what we're experiencing is not like that now. Mind the gap again, you see. The experience introduced in verse 4 is very different from the reality described in verses 1 to 3. Because here the psalmist is praying, Restore our fortunes, O Lord like streams in the Negev. We know the theology of verses 1 to 3, Lord, but why can't it be like that now for us? We need a new deliverance, a new intervention, Lord, like streams in the Negev. That, of course, is the reference to that arid desert southern region of Israel. The watercourses totally dry out in the heat of summer. And then when the sudden rains, first rains come, there are flash floods. Maybe you've seen it if you visited Israel. It's the most amazing sight, cascading down the barren hillsides. Now, he says, that's what we're hankering for. Some dramatic, instantaneous, overwhelming solution. We want the flash floods to come, Lord, and to bring all the life and fertility that the water produces. And we want that especially when our experience is verse 5a, those who sow in tears. 
Don't you find that a lot of your Christian service is like that? I do. Sowing in tears. Carrying seed to sow. Going out weeping, as one of the versions puts it. Well, it is. A lot of Christian ministry is like that, really. It's hard work. It's frustrating. Things don't work out the way that we'd hoped they would. There's a sense of failure. Is it really worth going on sowing in a time like that? Oh, Lord, why don't we have a flash flood revival? Send that power down. Those who sow in tears, what are the next two words? Will reap. If there isn't a sowing in tears, there won't be a weeping. Now, you don't have to sow in tears. Sometimes you sow without the tears, but often it's with tears. But I can tell you this, there won't be any reaping if there isn't any sowing. Do you know, a lot of people pray for revival, but what they don't do is sow. It's easy to go to church prayer meetings and say, Lord, revive your church. It's a harder thing to sow the gospel with your neighbor, isn't it? Much harder. But it's those who sow in tears who reap with joy. If there isn't any sowing, there can't be any reaping. Mind the gap. See, he's, he's bringing us back to this reality. Is it worth keeping on sowing? Yes, my spiritual labors don't seem to yield much. My friends don't become Christians. My family still haven't responded. My temptations seem only to increase. My weaknesses aren't miraculously removed, though I'd like them to be. Is it really worth it? I seem to still fall to the same old sins. Perhaps I need some downpour experience, some dramatic, life-changing, overwhelming, mind the gap. What you need to do is go on sowing in tears. You will reap in joy, but there's no reaping where there isn't sowing. That's a different answer, isn't it? It's not the one that we always want to hear. Here the watering is not the flash floods, but the tears of the sower. That's how God produces his harvest. So I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, don't give up sowing the seed. Don't get discouraged. I know we all do from time to time. Let's repent of that. Let's come back to this psalm. Let's recognize that the reaping with songs of joy that we long for is God's gift to us but it depends upon our sowing, even if it is with tears. I came across a statement the other day that says, when God ripens apples, he isn't in a hurry, and he doesn't make a noise about it. (laughs) And that's what church growth, real church growth is like. He isn't in a hurry, and he doesn't make a noise, but he's doing it. And his way is slow and undramatic, quiet and hidden, Do you remember the parable of the farmer who sows the seed in Mark 4? It's only in Mark. And he goes to bed and he gets up and he goes to bed and he gets up and the seed has life in itself and gradually the harvest appears. And then one day he reaps it. And what has he done? He's only gone to bed and got up. Well, I know he's looked after the seed probably and he's made sure that it's, um, in so far as he could, he's tended it. But he hasn't produced the harvest. That's something that God does. But I love the certainty of the second halves of those verses. Those who sow in tears will reap. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying his sheaves with him. And notice the plural of 6b, sheaves. The miracle of multiplication. 
that belongs to God alone. Now, the danger would be that we don't get on with the job of sowing because we're waiting for the downpour. So let's be sowers of the seed. Let's, let's take our theology and our experience and not allow them to be separate. What we know produces the confidence that the joy will come. The joy is as certain as the weeping. The experience does match the theology. There is a harvest. The gap is bridged. And pilgrims go on believing the promises and obeying the commands even through the tears. So keep sowing to that Sunday school class. You don't know what God is going to do. There was a very great British preacher called Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 19th century. He was a Baptist preacher whom God used to bring thousands of people to faith. He had a huge church in London, which is still going today. You can see it in the Elephant and Castle area of London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, it's called. Still a fine gospel church, though nothing like the size it was in Spurgeon's day. How was Spurgeon converted? Well, in a little chapel in Cambridgeshire on a snowy morning when there was only a handful of people there and he sat up in the little gallery in the Cambridgeshire chapel and nobody, the preacher who was supposed to come, couldn't get through the snow. And the old elder who lived next to the chapel or in the village decided that he had to give a, a sermon. And so he spoke on the text in Isaiah 44, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And he didn't know what to say about the text, but he looked up to this young boy in the gallery and said, you look very miserable, young man. Look unto the Lord and be saved. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon was, just at that moment. See, it's God who does it. Nothing to do with us. All we've got to do is to be channels in his hand. What does he ask us to do? Sow in tears. You'll reap in joy. Carry the, the precious seed. And you will return with songs of joy carrying your sheaves with you. So there's the gap, you see. Now, we mustn't allow that gap. That's the problem analyzed. We mustn't allow that gap to divert us from what we know we ought to do. We look back and see the great old days. That should make us pray. But we look forward and see the challenges now. That should make us work. So prayer and work go hand in hand. Pray and sow. Pray and sow. God will do it. God will do it. The problem is that we don't do both. The people who pray often don't sow and the people who sow often don't pray and we've got to get the two together, mind the gap. Lastly then, 127 and 128, the principles applied. In 127 we're introduced to two important spheres of life, the home and the city. Unless the Lord builds the house, its, labors, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stands guard in vain. So what are we looking at here? We're looking at the family and we're looking at the community. Now, these are the areas of living which occupy most of our time and energy. And this is where we feel the gap most intently in our family and community lives out there in the world, as we might say. Building a house in verse one is looking for, to the future, isn't it? It's planning for the days to come. That's why you build your house. Uh, in order to accommodate your family so that your family life can be secure and can progress. Watching over the city in the second part of verse 1 is um, safeguarding the present, preserving what you've got. So whether it's taking initiatives towards the future or preserving what you have, 
These are the two things which depend upon the Lord's involvement because it will be in vain unless the Lord is doing it. Not that he is doing it instead of us, but that as we do it, he is active through us. Now the structure of that verse is very important when you take it with verse 2. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Now this is not an invitation to shrug off all the hard work and responsibilities involved in family and business life on the grounds that God's gift is sleep. Uh, It could be exegeted that way, but it would be wrong, because then the principle would be that the more comatose you are, the more that is evidence of being loved by God. And while you may be feeling rather comatose by this stage on Saturday, let me assure you that isn't so. Uh, Lots of people do believe in a sort of quietist, pacifist Christianity, which I think is a travesty of the New Testament. We have to do the building, we have to do the working, but God is the one who enables us to do it. And if he isn't If it isn't God who is doing it, then all of our activity is useless and the sleep that we would love to have, but we don't allow ourselves to have because we're so frenetic, is uh, a sign that we're not really trusting in God. So there are two extremes to avoid, aren't there? There's the busy, busy freneticism of the person who thinks he's got to do it all for God. And there's the so laid back, relaxed view that God will do it all for me that we lapse into what Jim Packer has called jacuzzi Christianity, which is just sort of lay back in the warm bubbles and let the Lord do it all. Now, they are both extremes that are wrong, I think. The psalmist is not rejecting activity because he knows that there's no harvest unless we go on sowing through the tears. What he's rejecting is the restless, frenetic activity of a life that doesn't reckon on the involvement of the Lord. Indeed, everything in the end depends on God doing the work, just as everything at the beginning of Psalm 126 depended on God accomplishing the deliverance. Now, again, the footnote in the NIV is quite helpful in verse 2. Verse 2 reads, He grants sleep to those he loves. Footnote, For while they sleep, he provides for those he loves. Uh, that's the farmer in Matthew, in Mark 4 again, isn't it? He's sleeping, but God is providing. So what are we to say about this? Surely that the ultimate security, whether it's in the home or in the community, is the covenant love of God for us, his people, and our dependence on him to enable us to build and to watch in ways that are honoring to God and empowered by God. Now, let me put that in non-theological terms. You can fill your diary with working breakfasts and cram your briefcase with work to take home from the office every night. You can pass all your exams and plan your career and develop your investment portfolio, but none of that will guarantee your family or your business life because it cannot provide security, it cannot provide continuity. If the Lord is not building and watching, then it's in vain. But the structure of the verses implies that that is precisely what he is pledged to do for the people he loves, and that he will build and guard if we trust in him. So, mind the gap. He knows about the mortgage. He knows about the school bills. 
He knows about the taxes. He knows about the job market. He knows about the property values. He knows about the uh, gas prices. He knows about it all. He has the whole world in his hands. And he doesn't promise that there won't be periods of Negev desert-like experience. As we saw this morning, he doesn't lift us out of weeping and sowing. But he is committed to a harvest. So trust him and sleep. He loves you. He provides for you. He keeps you. Yes, you've got to work, of course. But covenant people who trust the covenant God know a rest of the spirit that comes from the knowledge that the Lord holds the present and the future in his hands and that he is not going to let us down and not going to let us go. But have you noticed how many Christians have an amazing talent for making God's greatest gifts into problems? And that is faithlessness, really. Look at verses 3 to 5. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from him. So we're back now to building the house. We're back to family life. And we're told that it's a God-given activity for our benefit and our blessing. Children are not a do donation of harassing care to wear us down and frazzle us. Verse 4 says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Now that I'm a grandfather, I can emphasize, the, the, I can understand the emphasis on youth. Sons born in one's youth, because you have much more energy to look after those sons, and I'm very glad that I can be a granddad and give them back. But I do see that uh, the blessing of children, if that is what God gives, is a great blessing. It's one of the many great blessings. But you see, the people who have that blessing often turn it into a, a great harassing, frazzling experience because life is so busy and I'm under such pressures and there are so many hostile forces in the world and, oh dear, what's going to happen to my children? In vain you rise up early and stay up late. He grants sleep to those he loves. Trust him. Do your bit. Be a good dad. Be a good mum. Trust him. Because verses 4 and 5 explore how fam family solidarity was one of the great strengths of the Old Testament. Now, we may not have, uh, I mean, obviously, sizes of children's, uh, of families uh, differ. In England, I think it's 1.9 children now, or something like that, to the average couple. But uh, it wasn't always like that in England. If you ever read the novels of Anthony Trollope, do you ever read any Trollope novels? He's a great 19th century novelist like Charles Dickens, and he wrote about the church a great deal. And you see that nothing has changed since the 19th century in the Church of England, really. But um, there was a, a clergyman uh, in uh, one of Trollope's, Trollope's novels who had an enormously large family, and his name was Mr. Quiverful. <laughs> Mr. Quiverful had many, many sons on this verse, you see. Like the arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So he had all these sons... But the point is, whether you have 1.9 or whether you have 8, uh, it's a picture of blessing because the Lord makes every provision 
for all the activities of life into which he calls us. Now, we mustn't sit there wringing our hands if we don't have sons, saying, why don't I? Because God has other blessings for us and other activities of life. But if he gives us sons and daughters, then, of course, being parents is a great blessing from God. And Christian parents need to receive that as God's good gift, to trust him, blessed is the man, and to uh, recognize that we should bring up our children in faith, not in fear. The two spheres are mutually exclusive. So mind the gap. The Bible says children are God's gift. It implies that it is the most natural thing that they should come to know and follow the Lord Jesus for themselves. They're members of God's, uh, uh, of a covenant family. They are members of the community of God's people. And therefore, we should trust God. So many Christian parents are so afraid that their children are going to go off the rails, they almost force them to do it. Now, it's like the lemmings and the lure of the precipice. Now, we don't bring up our children in fear. We bring them up in faith that they will come to know and love the Lord Jesus just as in his mercy he's brought us. So, in conclusion, the two spheres now are continued in Psalm 128 as the application of the principle is taken further. Let's just conclude with that for today. And then we'll say, peace be upon Israel and go home. (laughs) Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons like olive shoots around your table. There's the ideal family life in Old Testament agrarian society. It's self-sufficient. It's prosperous. There's a faithful marriage relationship and the blessing of children like olive shoots around your table. Great verses, aren't there, about godly family life. Those of you who are parents, remember that the next time when the milk jug is knocked over at breakfast, that the olive shoots around your table are indeed a blessing from the Lord. So verses 5 and 6 speak of the security of community life. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life and see the prosperity of Jerusalem. Not now just your own family, but the family of God. May you live to see your children's children. In your own family, yes, and in the church family too. Those who are used by God to bring others to faith. The prosperity of Jerusalem from generation to generation. What will that depend on? On the Lord's blessing, verse 5. It's in Yahweh's gift. And that is the only certain security because it's rooted in the faithfulness of our covenant-keeping God. So you see, there doesn't have to be a gap between belief and experience. What is the answer? Psalm 128 would say, verse 1, fear the Lord. Verse 4, fear the Lord. When it comes twice, it's important. It's always important, but especially here. Fear the Lord. So one of our hymns says, fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. And fearing the Lord is not a craven terror, but a humble reverence. It means recognize who he is and live your life on that basis. That is the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. Recognize who he is. He's God. Live your life on that basis. Depend on him. That's the pathway to the blessing. Because it lies in the relationship that God has created with his own people. So there is the supremely important relationship as we go climbing up to heaven. The supremely important ingredient in our lives 
is this relationship with the God of sovereignty and holiness and love. And friends, that's what will keep us sowing through the tears. That's what will keep us climbing through the difficulties. And it will keep us on the pathway of obedience. Verse 1, blessed are all who fear the Lord. How do I know I fear the Lord? Not because I've got a shiver down my spine. How do I know that I fear the Lord? Because I walk in his ways. See that in verse 1? What is it to fear the Lord? To walk in his ways. To be obedient. It keeps me on the pathway of obedience. The fear of the Lord. Not, as I finish, that God's blessing is the reward for obedience. Because it's all of his grace. But that obedience keeps the channels open for God to go on pouring his limitless resources into our perplexed and sometimes panicked and often frenetic lives. It's obedience that keeps the channel open so that the grace of God can keep flowing in in refreshing, life-giving mercy and power. It's obedience that leads to peace, shalom for Israel. That uh, sentence right at the end is shalom, peace beyond Israel. Shalom is, of course, the traditional greeting. It means well-being. It means wholeness. It means completeness. That is God's gift. And it comes when we fear the Lord and when we walk in his ways because it opens the channel by which we know him more and more to be the Lord. And that will keep us sowing through the tears, building when we feel as though it's not worth it, watching and guarding when we feel exhausted because we will see that God has his purposes through it all, that our children are a heritage from him, that our home and family and nation and community are the good gift of God, and that we, if we want to be blessed people, have to go on in our generation, fearing the Lord, walking in his ways, and teaching our children's children the same realities. Peace be upon Israel. Let us pray.